Today we are going to continue down the path we began last week and continue to look at some of the more epic moments that have taken place in our history, moments which directly impact the future of this nation and ultimately play a role in its destruction, They play a significant role in the death of America. Now, last week we looked at prayer and how prayer was not just accepted by the public school system, but rather it was actually something that was promoted. There was a time in this nation when the teachers actually stood up to lead their students in prayer, right? And you would find that some school districts were mandating it. Teachers were leading their students in reading the Bible. Can you even imagine being required to read 10 verses a day? That is amazing. But unfortunately, where we were at one time is no longer where we are today. Well, today we're going to continue to look at other dangerous trends which have developed over the years, things which this nation has done in direct opposition to God. Things like abortion. One of the most heinous and abominable things this nation has ever embraced without question is abortion. An act which not too long ago, we know to be true, it was forbidden in this country. It was something that was unthinkable. Something society simply wouldn't tolerate. But now, it's, legally, it's a protected right. And it's not just a legally protected right, but it's something that our government actually sponsors. According to the Susan B. Anthony list, and the Susan B. Anthony list is just a, it's a pro-life group, They estimated during the year 2011-2012 that Planned Parenthood received a record 542 million taxpayer dollars through various government grants, contracts, Medicaid, etc. All these different programs. Think about that number. They received 542 million dollars. So it's not that our government has just made killing the unborn, a legal right. But they have actually gone way beyond that, and now they're sponsoring that legal right. Thus, they're encouraging the act itself. They're encouraging it through funding. They're encouraging it through false propaganda. That's what's happening, through lies and deceit. And what is the response of society? How do they respond in the government, protecting that right, promoting that right, funding that right, propagating that right, how, do they, how does our society respond? They flock to them in droves. That's how they respond. According to the Guttmacher Institute, and keep in mind, when I'm about to quote you this, Guttmacher, they are no friends of the pro-life movement. Okay, But according to the Guttmacher Institute, we read these statistics. In 2011, 1.06 million abortions were performed. 1.06 million. You fathom that number? Down 13% from 1.2 million in 2008. From 1973 through 2011, there were nearly 53 million legal abortions occurred. Now it was up to just recently, but today, if you were to go through 2014, that number is now over 55 million. We are talking about killing unborn children, three to 4,000 of them every single day. And these are not global numbers. These are numbers for the United States of America. Do you ponder that for a second? 
I want to give you some background, some perspective into this atrocity and, and, and the trend of it. I'm going to take you back in time and show you how this trend unfolds. Now, most of us believe that abortion actually began with Roe v. Wade. But the truth of the matter is, it didn't just happen. It didn't just all of a sudden, 1973 rolls around, and all of a sudden now abortion's legal. But rather, it goes several years back before that, and it gives it time. It gave it time to develop, time to, to refine its arguments, time to manipulate the society. It gave it time to desensitize the society to receive that wicked crescendo of Roe v. Wade. Let me take you back to 1959, a very important year in regard to abortion in this nation. In 1959, we read, American Law Institute, known as ALI, proposes a model penal code for state abortion laws. And I want you to understand what was just said. In other words, the American Law Institute came in and they're proposing to fix the problems with all the state laws regarding abortion. They want to unify. They want to have a unified code across this country. And what does that code look like? We continue. The code advocates legalizing abortion in the case of rape, incest, or fetal deformity. This happened in 1959. Okay? The American Law Institute comes on the scene and says, listen, we need to advocate a new code. It needs to be applied across the board, in cases of rape, incest, and fetal deformity. But unfortunately, what they propose didn't end there. They go on to include the mental or physical health of a mother. I want you to understand something. Do you understand what that means, the mental or physical health to a mother? I mean, what does that mean? It's a very, very broad, ambiguous term. I'll tell you what it means. It matters to who's defining the term. Well, who do you think is going to be defining the mental health of, of, of a woman? A lot of the times, the doctors who are actually performing the abortion. So you think about these things. This is back in 1959. You see this trend really start to develop. Now let me take you ahead a few years. Moving to 1967. Colorado Governor John Love signs the first liberalized ALI model abortion law in the United States. This is 67, long before 1973. Allowing abortion in cases of permanent mental or physical disability of either the child or mother or in cases of rape or incest. Similar laws are passed in California, Oregon, and North Carolina. Do you see that? Allowing in cases of permanent mental or physical disability. So this is where you get into, and I, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of people that had uh, children that were either had Down syndrome or saw the, some others you know, similar to that, where the doctor will, will go to them is, would, would you consider aborting this child? Because it's not going to have a full quality of life. So we find... 1959, moving to 1967, we find a real momentum in this nation more and more that this deceptive lie grows and grows and spreads, and it is being accepted. It's being accepted by the public. And then we come to 1970, just three years before Roe v. Wade, and we read this, New York allows abortion on demand. 
And that means for any reason you have abortion. Up to the 24th week of pregnancy, as Governor Nelson Rockefeller signs a bill repealing the state's 1830 law that banned abortion after quickening, except to save a woman's life. Similar laws are passed in Alaska, Hawaii, and Washington State. This is an amazing statement, because as we peer back in history, what do we discover? Society refused to accept abortion. There were laws on the books banning it. It was illegal at one time in this nation. It's very important you see we have catastrophic trends starting to form. Then we come to 1971. The U.S. Supreme Court rules on its first case involving abortion in United States versus Vooch. Upholding a District of Columbia law permitting abortion only to preserve a woman's life or health. So only to preserve a woman's life or health. Here's the catch to the statement. This may sound like, oh, good, this is going to limit abortion. But unfortunately, you need to understand the, the term health the way the courts understand it. Again, going back, it can mean physical, physical issues with the woman, or it could mean psychological. Who's defining that? Psychological. I mean, you think about that. That is Pandora's box. Now, all of a sudden, you enter the land of ambiguity. Now, a woman could have abortion for any reason. Oh, I have depression. Psychological issue. Unbelievable. Then we come to 1972, the next year, the year before Roe v. Wade. And we read this. By the end of the year, we find that there are a total of 13 states that have an ALI-type law. There's your trend. There's the wickedness starting to set in. The hook has been set. And society is grabbing this abominable atrocity. They're flocking to it. So contrary to public opinion, abortions were happening long before Roe v. Wade was ever even, was ever even introduced. And I want to share with you an article. And this article is going to help you gain some perspective on the things we just talked about. Briefly, just going over some of the things that have happened in a, in a, in a period of a uh, few short years. Listen to what this article says. This is amazing. Contrary to popular belief, legal abortion was widely available in the United States prior to Roe. Legal abortion, for limited reasons, had been introduced in Colorado and California in 1967. Abortion on demand, that is, uh, legal abortion for any reason, was introduced to the United States in 1970, three years before Roe. When New York and three other states began permitting unrestricted abortions up to the 20th or 24th week of pregnancy. Because uh, New York and California's abortion laws lacked a residency requirement, some abortion providers began offering travel packages for women to fly to New York or Los Angeles to terminate their pregnancies. Hundreds of thousands of American women did so. In 1972, the year before Roe v. Wade, there were 586,760 legal abortions performed in the United States. Unbelievable. Before Roe v. Wade ever happened, there was almost 600,000 abortions, legal abortions. Obviously, there was a serious trend sweeping this nation. And that led up to that epic court case the wicked crescendo of it all, Roe v. Wade. 
1973, the very year I was born. My mom could have actually legally had one. Fortunately, the Lord had mercy on me. Now, this was the year that the United States Supreme Court issued its ruling, finding that a right of privacy was broad enough, a woman's right of privacy was actually broad enough uh, to encompass a woman's right to abort, and then thus, uh, obviously, adopting this trimester scheme of pregnancy. Now, in this case, this is very important, you listen to me, in this case, the people on the other side were actually arguing, wait a second, the fetus is a person. The fetus is protected by the Constitution. It's protected by the 14th Amendment. So we have a problem. Let me share with you the 14th Amendment before we continue. It says this, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Listen, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property. It sounds familiar, don't it? Because the very same words are in the Declaration. Only it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So you understand what they meant by pursuit of happiness had to do with property. We have the right to property. Communism will tell you you have the right to nothing. You own nothing. The state owns everything. But here we find in the 14th Amendment, the state is not allowed to deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So it was argued in Roe v. Wade that said, wait a second, the fetus is protected. It's protected under the 14th Amendment. However, in response to this argument, Justice Harry Blackman, he responded with the following. Listen to the statement. If this suggestion of personhood is established, the, the, applicant, the, the appellate's case, of course, collapses for the fetus's right to life, would then be guaranteed specifically by the amendment. So here, do you understand what he's saying? He's like, if in fact... This is, the, this is the reality. The fetus is actually a person. Then the case of Roe completely collapses. It's, it's done. There's nothing to talk about. The 14th Amendment will come and save the unborn child. If it's a person, okay? However, Justice Blackman had come to the following understanding regarding the fetus. And he says, the word person as used in the 14th Amendment does not include the unborn. Think about that. We just stated, according to the courts, according to man, that what grows in that has fingers and toes and a heartbeat, right? And is feeding, is eating, is being nourished. Apparently that's not a person. Well, what is it? To them, obviously it's something like a tumor that is to be cut out. Because apparently it is not a person. It is not protected under the 14th Amendment. Furthermore, the court um, decided that the first trimester, which is a woman who's pregnant up to 12 weeks, that they actually stated that a state could not enact any law whatsoever prohibiting abortion. So Roe v. Wade is very powerful. It's a very powerful case. And so throughout all the states, they can't tell a woman, 
for any reason in the first trimester that they cannot have an abortion. You understand? But in the second trimester, and this is the 13 to 27 week period, the state could, they allowed the state to enact some regulation, but only for the purpose of protecting maternal health. Well, we already know how they describe health. Essentially, there are no fences. You're essentially dealing with whatever. In the third trimester, which is 28 weeks to delivery, they decided that a state could presumably ban abortion provided it had exceptions uh, to, to preserve, again, the life and health of a woman. So the problem here is, is going back to the court's understanding of health. Its definition is broad, right? It includes several factors. In one, psychological, which essentially, according to the pharmaceutical company, all of us have psychological problems. We need their pills, apparently, right? Everyone's got some disorder of some kind. So, basically, what we find is regarding this first, second, third trimester, it doesn't matter. Let me boil it down for you. For any reason, if a woman wants abortion, she's going to have one. You understand? That's basically what it comes down to. Now, as the years go on, some interesting things begin to happen on the court level regarding abortion. And I want to share some of them with you and to continue to give you some perspective here. As we continue, three years after Roe v. Wade, a very important case, Planned Parenthood, a Central Missouri versus Danforth, the court rejected a parental consent requirement and decided that fathers had no rights in the abortion decision. You have no idea how critical this case is. This is an amazing case. And what you need to understand is the ramifications for abortion. If you're going to legalize abortion, you're going to have to have all sorts of other cases are going to begin to unfold because of that decision. There's going to be ramifications. There's going to be other things that are going to be affected, not just the child. See, if you think abortion is just literally to draw a circle around that poor innocent child that's been murdered, and you think that's the end of it, that is not the end of it. Look at what this said. The court rejected a parental consent requirement. Understand, you go throughout all the states, all the states have varying degrees of laws on abortion, but they're all the same. I mean, they're essentially all the same. You can go to some states, and some states will say, well, we have a consent requirement. And then you've got to dig deeper. Well, is it one parent or is it two parent? Okay, well, it's going to be two parents. In some states, it is. In some states, only one parent is required to have consent. And then you can have the abortion. So a father could disagree. A mother could say, honey, go do it. And that's that. And it's over. And then you have other states. Many states in this nation are just informed policy. Where the parent, they don't need the parent's consent. They just need to legally inform the parent that they're going to do it. It doesn't matter if they're underage. I want you to consider that. So they could just inform some states and then that's when you've got to go dig deeper. Well, some states will say 48 hours. Some states will say 24 hours. This is amazing. But let me share with you a little tidbit that Planned Parenthood does. Because all the states, most of the states, not all, most of the states have either an informed policy or a consent policy. Very few states in America have the no consent policy or no informed policy. There are a few. I think Washington, I think California. So we do have a couple. But let me in, I want to let you in on a little secret. Because something Planned Parenthood knows. 
Even all the states that require either one-parent, two-parent consent doesn't matter. All these states that require it, there is something known as a judicial bypass. And the judicial bypass just bypasses the requirement. And Planned Parenthood is sharing this with the teens. This is how they're doing it. So literally, in every state in this country, you can go get a judicial bypass, and your parents have no say at all. Let me show you how abortion has affected so many different facets of this nation's society. We now have seen and understood that the state has taken our children. You do not have control over your children. If your child who is underage wants to go have an abortion, guess what, mom and dad? None of your business. So it doesn't just stop with the murder of an innocent child. What else has happened in abortion? The state has come in and taken the children from the parents. Understand, this is an attack on the families of America. That's what this is. Literally an attack on the families of America to destroy families. And it's doing a very good job. The other thing, I don't know if you mentioned here, again, going back to the destruction of the family, the authority of the parents, which is God-given, by the way, God gave you authority. God is required and give you the responsibility to train your child to grow up in the ways of the Lord. This is biblical, right? But look at the second thing that's said here. They also decided that fathers have no rights in the decision either. There we go, attacking the family. Take the father's right. And who is the head of the household? It is the father, biblically speaking. He's supposed to be protecting the household. So what is the state going to do? Strip the father of his rights. Take out the head of the household. And if mom wants to give us problems, that's fine. We'll just do a little judicial bypass action. And we'll just totally subvert and usurp the parents' authority over their children. Let's move on in this year. Later on in this year, at the end of the year in December, manslaughter conviction of abortionist Edelin is overturned by the Massachusetts Superior Judicial Court, which rules that legal abortions are manslaughter only if the baby is definitely alive outside the mother's body. Are you kidding me? So they overturn this. It's a matter of geography. It could be a matter of seconds, whether it would be considered manslaughter or not. And one thing I can tell you, and I will show in a little bit, is I, unfortunately, you need to understand that even after babies are born, they're being aborted. Today, and have been. Moving to 1979, a major pro-life book is released by Dr. Bernard Nathanson called Aborting America. This is amazing and ironic. And I say ironic because this doctor was actually one of the co-founders of the National Abortion Rights Action League. See, what happened to Dr. Nathanson is that after being involved in thousands of these abortions, he switched his position. He was involved in thousands, overseeing thousands more. But he ends up switching his position on abortion and became a pro-life advocate because of what he experienced and what he saw. And so he comes out as a pro-life advocate exposing the fraud and the lies that sit in the pro-choice camp. And they hated him. Still do. 
Now, interestingly enough, not that long ago, the New York Times ran an article, and I want to share this article on Nathanson because he had passed away. And the headline reads, uh, being Nathanson, 84, dies. Chain sides on abortion. That's the headline. Now, within this article, he actually goes on to describe Nathanson's involvement in a short film known as The Silent Screen. And all of you can go home and watch this. You can YouTube this film. 28-minute film. It's called The Silent Screen. This is what he says. The Silent Scream, a 28-minute film produced by Crusade for Life, was released in early 1985. In it, Dr. Nathanson described the stages of fetal development and offered commentary as the sonogram showed in graphic detail the abortion of a 12-week-old fetus by the suction method. And so what he's talking about in this film is Nathanson's literally sitting in front of a TV. He's giving commentary as an abortion is being performed on a baby, on a child that is 12 weeks old. And then it mentions uh, this particular one was through the suction method, which is very common. Now, just so you know what the suction method is, is that's when the abortionist takes an instrument and goes up inside the uterus of, of, of a woman and starts sucking out the child in pieces. And then what happens is it goes to this tube, and, on the, and then on the countertop that's right next to them, this vacuum that's working, they have a big glass jar that sucks everything within that glass jar. All the parts of the baby is getting sucked in there so that they can see what they've done, so that they can see all the parts, make sure all the parts are there. And then if they have any question, they always go back in again to clean the uterus, clean out the walls to make sure they don't leave any appendages in the mother. This is the suction method. And goes on. We see the child's mouth open in a silent scream. He said as the ultrasound image slowed for dramatic impact, showed a fetus seeming to shrink from surgical instruments. This is the silent scream of a child threatened imminently with extinction. This is a guy that had been through thousands of abortions. He knows what he was looking at. And then you can see on the sonogram, he's saying... They feel it. They know what you are doing to it. They know what's happening to them. It's said that all the necessary structures for the baby to experience pain, they're functioning at nine weeks. This particular sonogram happened at 12. Hence the silent scream and the feel of that. No one in their right mind can on any level call this anything but what it is. Pure and simple. It's murder. Our nation is sick. We are a cancer. I mean, that's the bottom line. A nation that kills its own unborn is not fit to be a nation, nor will it continue to be a nation. We have women killing their unborn children because they don't want it to interfere with their education. Okay? They don't want it to interfere with their education. We have women killing their unborn because they don't want to be hindered in their career. Their career is that important at the expense of a a human being's life. We have women that commit abortion because they actually do an abortion because they don't want to gain weight. Vanity leading to murder. Selfishness leading to murder. Paul is very clear in the book of Romans that lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. That's what happens. Lawlessness leading to lawlessness. And you think about this, you actually have these people offering their children up to the God of Molech. Whether it's Molech of vanity, 
Molech of selfishness, Molech of career. Whatever it is, this is what's happening. We also have women also being manipulated into performing an abortion. Other people seeking to come to them to influence a mother's decision, uh, their decision through deception, through manipulation, through coercion. And these mothers are literally end up caving into the will of others, not really understanding the ramifications of what they're doing at that time. That's what's so scary. They're being preyed upon. These young women are being preyed upon. And they're very easily swayed. And of course, the people from Planned Parenthood, they don't want the people that would give good godly counsel talking to them, showing them and revealing to them that there is really a human being growing inside of you, putting true perspective in on the matter. Let me share with you a more recent story. The headline reads this, Philadelphia Abortion Clinic Whore. Subheader reads the following, We have forgotten what belongs on page one. And then it goes on to say, Infant beheadings, severed baby feet in jars, a child screaming after it was delivered alive during an abortion procedure. Haven't heard about these sickening accusations? It's not your fault since the murder trial of Pennsylvania abortion doctor Kermit Gosnell uh, began March 18th, there have been precious little coverage of the case that should be on every news show and front page. The revolting revelations of Gosnell's former staff who have been testifying to what they witnessed and did during late-term abortions should shock anyone with a heart. NBC10 Philadelphia reported that Stephen Massa, a former Gosnell worker, described how he snipped the spinal cords of babies, calling it literally a beheading. It is separating the brain from the body. One former worker, Adrian Moten, testified that Gosnell taught her his snipping technique to use on infants born alive. Massoff, who like other witnesses, has himself pleaded guilty to serious crimes, testified it would rain fetuses, fetuses and blood all over the place. Here is the headlines the Associated Press put on a story about his testimony that he saw 100 babies born and then snipped. And the headline is this, Stafford describes chaos at PA abortion clinic. Do you think about how sick and twisted and perverse the media is today? That's the headline that they read? After the 100 babies have been decapitated? That there's chaos? That's how you describe it? Chaos isn't really the story here. Butchering babies that were already born and were older than the state's 24-week limit for abortions is the story. There's a reason the late Democratic Senator Daniel Patrick uh, Moynihan called this procedure infanticide. And goes on, Planned Parenthood recently claimed that the possibility of infants surviving late-term abortions was highly unusual. The Gosnell case suggests otherwise. Regardless of such quibbles about whether Gosnell was killing the infants one second after they left the womb instead of partially inside or completely inside the womb, as in a routine uh, late-term abortion, is merely a matter of geography. That one is murder and the other is a legal procedure is morally irreconcilable. I couldn't agree more. goes on. A LexisNexis uh, search shows none of the news shows on the three major national television networks has mentioned 
the Gosnell trial in the last three months. The exception is that when Wall Street Journal columnist uh, Peggy Noonan hijacked a segment on Meet the Press meant to uh, ferment outrage over an anti-abortion rights law in some backward red state. The Washington Post had not published original reporting on this during the trial. And the New York Times saw it fit to run one original story on A17 on the trial's first day. They've been silent ever since, despite headline-worthy testimony. Let me state the obvious. This should be front-page news. Make no mistake, all the things that we're going to be talking about in this series, understand, they're all connected. They are all connected. From the prayers, to the abortions, to the fact that media, that the media is not reporting these things, they're all connected. All telling us the same thing. Now jumping ahead, she finishes with this. The deafening silence of too much of the media. Once a force for justice in America is a disgrace. She catches on to something here. The media used to be the ones uncovering the stories. People would be scared of journalists because they would expose them as frauds. They would expose them as murders. They would expose the true story. But unfortunately, media has been flopped upside down. It's been flopped on its back. And they're actually protecting the wicked of this nation. That is, by and large, the structure of our media today. I know that's not popular. Let me get biblical for the rest of today. The Sixth Commandment, it reads, Lo, Tirzach. This is the Sixth Commandment. In Hebrew, it says, You shall not murder. This is the reality. You shall not murder. And this, you need to understand, includes whether a child is in the womb or out of the womb. It includes both. And I want to give you biblical support for this so that you can see that there is no question that the child who is in the womb is a person. There is no question. Exodus 21, 22. As men fight and hurt a woman with child, so the child gives birth prematurely, Yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according to the woman's husband imposes on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. Do you see that? If someone were to actually hurt a child in the womb, what is he? And that child doesn't make it, he is a murderer. And what is required? Giving life for life. This is biblical. This is scripture. Let me jump ahead to Numbers chapter 35, verse 30. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. Continuing in verse 32. And he shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land. I want to stop there. You just see what Scripture said, what the Torah instructs. These are the words of God. Understand, blood defiles the land. And no atonement can be made for the land. For the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. 
I hope you feel the weight, the actual gravity of this statement. This is a terrifying statement because here we're told that blood, a murderer, the murderers, what they do to the land, they actually defile the land. And the only way that it can be reconciled, in other words, the only way it can be kept, the land can be kept in good status and non-defiled status is in fact if they bring those perpetrators, those murderers to justice. Bring these people to justice who've committed the atrocities. But what are we doing in this nation? I mean, seriously, are we bringing those who kill the unborn to justice? Is the government rounding up all the abortionists and instituting the death penalty upon these people? Are they immediately changing legislation? Let me ask you a question. What do you think is going to happen to a nation where it's government, the very entity that legislates, that establishes the laws of the land and enforces them, what do you think is going to happen to a nation whose government supports these atrocities and funds those things which the Bible deems abominable? I mean, what do you really believe is going to happen to this land? You think God is going to bless the land? A land raining down blood in fetuses? We are literally drowning in a pool of blood. Let's, let me go back to for week one. We read this passage. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. In other words, when a land becomes defiled, what expectation does that land have? When it becomes defiled, what expectation? What can they expect? Nothing but judgment. There's nothing left but judgment. The Lord is clear. He is going to visit the iniquity. He will judge that nation. I want to share with you a story before we close. The story is found in the book of Judges. It's a story that's going to help you put things into perspective to realize really where we are right now, all right, as a nation. In chapter 19 of the book of Judges, we're told about a certain Levite who was from the mountains of Ephraim. And this Levite, he had a concubine. He had, it's, which is, a concubine is a wife, just under a different status. So he has this concubine slash wife, and he travels to Gibeah, and he, land, and he actually stays in the land of Gibeah, which is of the tribe of Benjamin. So this Levite and his wife, they're surrounded by Benjamites, all right? Now as he's in the open square, he runs into this old man. Ironically, this old man is also from the hills of Ephraim, from the mountains of Ephraim. So because of that, obviously they have some kinship here. He stays. He stays with this old man. At which point we pick it up in verse 22. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. Now, certain men of the city, who is that? Well, obviously you're in the tribe of Benjamin. This is they're all Benjamites, all right? But apparently we're told they're perverted men. They start beating on the house. And they spoke to the master of the house, the old man, who's housing the Levite and his wife, saying, bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him carnally. Does this sound familiar? Because this is exactly what happened in Genesis 19. When the two angels came to Lot to stay with him, the men surrounded the house and they wanted to know the angels carnally. Homosexuals. They wanted to engage in illicit acts. 
It's the exact same thing that's happening here. And in verse uh, 23, we read, But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, exact same thing Lot said, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Going to verse 24. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man, do no such vile thing. This is the exact same thing Lot did. He offered his two virgin daughters to the wicked men that had had surrounded his house. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. And it goes on. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. What happened? The concubine died right at the door. This is what happens. She actually died. And because of this, the Levite, he does something that's never happened in Israel ever. He divides her, he cuts her up into 12 different pieces. And he sends the 12 different pieces, one piece to each tribe of Israel. All right? Now, because he does this, the children of Israel, obviously being shaken by this event, they gather together as one man in Mitzvah. At which point we read in verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 3, rather. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. Then the children of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, and you get that murdered, same word that we actually read in Exodus chapter 20, that you shall not murder. He answered and said, My concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. Verse 5, And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. So all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any... Uh, turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, a thousand out of every ten thousand, to make provisions for the people, that when they come to Gibeah in Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. Verse 11. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through uh, all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? So here you have, okay, all this stuff transpired. The tribes of Israel come together as one man, excluding the tribe of Benjamin, and they come in and they say, What is going on? We want an answer in verse 13. Now therefore deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. You need to understand, they understood that they could not have this vile wickedness happen without justice 
Otherwise, they would be living in a defiled land, and the only thing they could expect would be to be vomited out. So they're moving, yes, to promote justice. They're also moving in self-preservation. They're moving in self-preservation, knowing if they do not, God is going to judge them. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. Now, I want you to put this into context. A horrible atrocity is committed in the land of Benjamin. What did the Benjamites do based upon acknowledging this wicked deed? I mean, did they deliver justice in their land? Keeping their land pure from defilement? No. Instead, they actually refused to bring these men who raped and killed an innocent woman to justice. And they didn't just refuse, but they were willing to fight and defend their decision by going to war with the rest of the tribes of Israel. So how do you think these things panned out for Benjamin? Well, let's make a long story short. At the time this atrocity was committed, Scripture indicates that the land of Benjamin actually had 26,700 men. Okay, And then obviously you would have women and children. But because of the refusal to seek justice for this abominable act, the tribe of Benjamin was literally almost entirely wiped out because over 25,100 men were killed because they would not stand up for justice. They would not execute justice, but rather promoted the wickedness itself. They were willing to defend it. Think about what this country is doing today. The government has stood up in opposition to God to defend wickedness. If God did this to his own people, what expectation can we have upon this land? Total judgment. Judgment is coming. And you know, you hear people talk, I I, I hear whispers and talks of, oh, the Lord is going to take his hand off this nation. If we don't turn, he'll take his hand off and that blessing and protection will leave. You know nothing of what is going on, if that's how you think. I could wish that it would just be the Lord taking his hand off and stopping the blessings. It is not going to be that. It is going to be the hand of the Lord coming against this country. And when it comes against this country, and it already is, there is no one that can stop God. That's what's coming. You should be feared, uh, filled with fear and terror of the Lord. This, this should be promoting repentance. You look at this, 94, roughly 94% of a tribe of Israel destroyed over one woman. One woman. What do you think is going to happen to over 55 million innocent children? 